This is our new Asia series from Control Risks, where we bring you insights from our in-house experts on the most pressing political, economic, and security risks we see emerging in the Asia-Pacific. I'm Dane Chamorro, a partner in our Asia business. From our offices in Singapore, Shanghai, New Delhi, and elsewhere, our team of specialist consultants help businesses that are operating and investing amidst a whole manner of challenges. This ranges from political and regulatory analysis to vendor screening, strategic intelligence, crisis planning, and cyber response, just to name a few. Today, we're talking about COVID-19 and its impact on the economies of key Asian markets, as well as what the operational environment in the region may look like as the crisis passes and we approach recovery, including where businesses see both opportunities and challenges. My point is this. You really do walk away from your China supply chain at your peril. If I talk to these same people who have diversified their supply chain to other parts of the region, their anecdotal comments are, frankly speaking, the region in the eye of this supply chain crisis stepped down, not up. By all means, diversify your supply chain. But frankly speaking, today and for the medium term future, the one economy that can do it really, really well is still China. That and more coming up in this episode from Control Risk Asia Pacific team. Today I'm speaking with Steve Wolford, who leads our global risk analysis team in the Asia Pacific region. Steve has more than 20 years of experience analyzing Asian affairs, having been variously based at our offices in Singapore, Jakarta, and New Delhi, including initially setting up the Control Risk operational presence in India. The team he leads provides our clients with tailored country, sector, and regulatory risk assessments across the region, as well as producing continuous briefings on political and security developments through our core subscription service. Before COVID-19 hit, one of our top five predictions for 2020 was economic weakness. In the midst of COVID-19, our partners at Oxford Economics are predicting that world GDP will contract by at least a couple of percentage points, and Asia will be roughly flat. This is unprecedented in recent history. However, Oxford Economics, like ourselves, also predicts that Asia will be the first region to start to recover. I began by asking Steve how he saw that playing out and what countries or markets were likely to recover ahead of others. I think we can start now to sort of sketch out the broad outline of what resumption, if not recovery, will look like for economies in Asia. Obviously, it's highly predicated on things that we're not experts in, like epidemiology, vaccines, reinfections towards the end of the year, etc. If we take as a tentative baseline, the IMF's view that probably the pandemic is going to start tamping down globally in the second quarter, what you're going to see in Asia is, in my opinion, really a a re-emergence from what many of these economies were already going into before the pandemic struck, with, of course, two to three percentage points in some cases of GDP growth wiped off. So if we're thinking, thinking about China, The U.S. has barely taken its foot off the pedal in terms of its view of China as a strategic rival. Right in the eye of the U.S. pandemic, we've seen China Telecom being effectively banned from the U.S. telecoms market. And that's going to be a macroeconomic factor coming out of the crisis, just as it was going in. Uh, China, of course, is sitting 
fairly pretty, shall we say, or at least Xi Jinping is feeling pretty smug with himself in terms of how it dealt with this crisis. But it's not over yet. Uh, China, in some respects, has created a little bit of a velvet cage for itself by being so effective at keeping the majority of its population uninfected. It's still trying to figure out how to open its economy again. That's going to be a huge challenge for China going forward. With India, the country was facing GDP slowdown and significant stresses uh, within certain sectors, banking, etc. Going into this, the pandemic and Modi's very rigorous lockdown in response to it is actually going to accelerate those stresses so that when India in some form comes out of this, you're going to see growth significantly slowed, major sectors significantly weaker. And I think the temptation for Modi is, if you like, a strong man leader is going to be to rely increasingly on the sort of bread and circuses measures playing to the Hindu nationalist right, etc., to cover up for some of these weaknesses in economic performance. And that doesn't bode well for internal stability and possibly it doesn't bode well for crucial relationships such as India's ties to Pakistan, etc. For Japan, in I think GDP numerical terms, it's going to experience the largest contraction of the three. Shinzo Abe is talking about um, the implementation of a, I think, a $989 billion recovery plan for Japan. That's not simply a measure to keep the lights on. What I think he's going to try and do there as well is fundamentally shift the Japanese economy out of China. That's a strategic goal to just reduce Japan's reliance on China's manufacturing base for for much of its supply chain. But also, I think one of Abe's strategic goals is to force many of the major Japanese trading players, etc., kicking and screaming to actually actually automate, actually embrace digitization, artificial intelligence as a coping strategy, if you like, for the country's uh, human resources crisis in the form of its aging population. Again, these are factors that were very much in play going into the crisis and really have just been brought front and center. That's very interesting. Um, And I think that's an interesting trend in terms of the greater automation. And you also touched upon China, which is kind of the elephant in the room economically for the region, as well as politically, strategically, of course. You've been quoted as saying, and you kind of touched upon it just just then, that, you know, kind of President Xi Jinping is having a great pandemic, for lack of a better word, better phrase. What do you think the operating environment will be in China? You've just kind of referenced Japan and what that might look like. What do you think it will look like in China, which is now, of course, heavily consumption-driven economy, much more so than it has ever been in the past. I think it's about half the GDP is driven by consumption. They've never really experienced that before. How do you think that will play out in terms of how will China kind of get back to the levels of growth they were seeing before the crisis? And then the second part of that is, do you think the operating environment for multinational foreign companies in China is going to change dramatically? Or again, will it be kind of more of the same? I mean, let me qualify that um, that uh, rather cynical comment about Xi Jinping having a, a a great pandemic. I mean, as we know, I mean, the timeframes are so compressed, it's very fresh in everybody's mind just how badly 
China was doing in, in the initial phases of, um, of, of dealing with the, the pandemic. They were shooting the messengers, the provinces were disguising the real status of the crisis. Then making that switch from simply resuming the supply lines, reopening the restaurants, so on and so forth, to actually China moving towards something that's more normal is going to be really, really difficult. And the reconciliation between reopening your economy and reopening your economy to another uh, attack of the coronavirus is China's number one dilemma right now. If we just park that for a minute and go with, if you like, the sort of midway IMF endorsed relatively optimistic view that the current status quo in China will hold and the gradual opening that we're seeing now is a linear trajectory and it's going to continue to move in this direction, then by the end of the year, we're going to see a much a much humbled Chinese uh, economy, barely booking growth. But as we began this, relative to its major economic peers, doing significantly better. Now on the, where does that leave the welcome mat for foreign investors? I would say this, just anecdotally, Many of the the clients that we, that we were working with in, in in China during the during the real eye of the crisis in that country, the consistent sentiment was just how well quote unquote they were looked after by Chinese officials in terms of responsiveness, in terms of ways of of working to minimise the, the impact on on production etc. where possible a density and clarity of conversations that allayed fears amongst our, our clients in manufacturing about the when and the how of the resumption of production. And I think China has been quite standout actually in its treatment of foreign investors. When we compare the experiences of, frankly, uh, many of our, our friends in manufacturing in Malaysia, Certainly, many of our, our clients attempting to cope with the sort of vagaries of Indonesian officialdom in the eye of this and ditto India. So just in terms of operational operational risk, uh, China has done uh, extremely well in that regard, I think. You're absolutely right. From everything we've heard, they've they've actually done a much better job than a lot of the other com- uh, countries that are in competition with them for multinational investment and attention. Let's talk about China abroad, just a second. So the the belief is, the the mantra is that American power is declining at a time when China's is rising and that this pandemic crisis may actually, to your point, accelerate a trend that was already uh, there. And China has done quite a lot, at least superficially, to advance its quote-unquote soft power by sending doctors to Italy and mass to a few countries in southeastern Europe and to Africa, et cetera, kind of the virus diplomacy, as they're calling it. So do we think that China benefits from this crisis internationally? Do we see the U.S.-China relationship remaining problematic or even worsening? I think perhaps if you're, a, you know, if you're an avid reader of China Daily or if you're a, a, a Beijing, a Beijing official, if you might be thinking to yourself, if you compare the way China has dealt with the COVID uh, crisis versus the way the United States is dealing with it, surely that must have a demonstrative effect on 
other countries in the world in terms of who you actually want to do business with, who you want to do your politics with, who you recognize as being top dog in Asia. Uh, surely it must be China now, right? I would almost certainly say wrong. China going into the, the, the pandemic actually had one ally, one ally in the whole of the world, in my opinion, arguably, and that's Pakistan. And that a, a really difficult ally to have, one. And then you could argue China has a, a bunch of what you might traditionally call sort of vassals, satraps, whatever you want to call it. You might name Cambodia as one in this part of the world, maybe a couple of states in Africa uh, where essentially China's sort of bought the loyalty of those governments. Beyond that, China really had no other allies, uh, no other friends in the world. It's got a lot of countries that respect what it's trying to do. A lot of countries that are happy to take the Chinese yuan for their major infra infrastructure projects. It's got companies like that queuing around the block, but it didn't have the kind of alliance network that's obviously more identifiable uh, amongst other leading powers around the, around the world. And that essentially boils down to a lack of trust. Um, going into the pandemic, there was a distinct lack of trust in Asia, obviously between natural rivals like Japan, but also between collaborators uh, such as ASEAN. Much of ASEAN is deeply concerned about, about China's intentions in the region, whilst deeply enticed by China's economic muscle, by China's ability to consume what ASEAN produces. But that doesn't necessarily make an alliance. Um, and once uh, we come out of the COVID crisis, that tension will remain, that suspicion will remain. Um, I think China's underlying principle of foreign policy, which is essentially to garner soft power almost at any cost for the Middle Kingdom, is going to remain unchanged. It seems to be singularly incapable of imagining what a more collaborative uh, foreign policy, a genuinely collaborative foreign policy might look like. And to that extent, America's determined efforts to undermine its status as the regional hegemon are not going to be that seriously damaged. And then if you want to come to where that status is going to go once the pandemic is over, I suppose the big question is who's going to run the United States? And I think if you did have a change of power in Washington, it wouldn't change the strategic dynamics of that relationship, but it would probably start to bring a, a much higher degree of predictability to it. That would probably be the biggest global outcome of the, of the pandemic from a geopolitical perspective, if it changes the seat in the White House. Yeah, and that's a good... Um... It's a good segue because, and it's very timely, because we've just had an election in Korea, which is kind of an often overlooked place, despite the size of its economy. Um, and the president's party, President Moon's party, did surprisingly well. They took a majority of the parliament, which just a few months ago nobody would have predicted, which we are now thinking will make it easier for him to get his stimulus package through. So do you see that kind of how you performed during the crisis as a government or as a political leader upswing or potentially downswing if you correspondingly are not seem to seem to have uh, managed it well happening in other places. Yeah, I do. 
the Korean example that we saw a couple of days ago is the world's first COVID election. It was a referendum on yes. the on the president's performance in uh, managing the pandemic in Korea, and him and his party played a blinder, and he was rewarded at the polls. The election itself was a testament to how well Korea has done in managing pandemic, that they managed to get 66% of voters out to the election, entirely ordered, all social distancing measures still in place, and and, and get that poll done. Uh, and that is, you're right, the first of a number of polls where we're going to see populations just voting predominantly on that performance. Um, we've mentioned the United States. More imminent ones maybe are um, polls in Singapore. We might see uh, Shinzo Abe, if he, if he can turn a corner on his handling of, of the pandemic, he might bring an election date forward as well. Other politicians are in greater danger, in my opinion, in Asia. And this really hasn't been looked at too closely so far. But I, I would say there's a dangerous for, there's a dangerous formula in a number of economies, and the formula is this, right? If you take the example of Narendra Modi's India, or much of Luzon under President Rodi Duterte of the of the Philippines, you've got this combination of really rigorous lockdown coupled with healthcare systems that can't really bear the load of significant infection rates added to the fact that much of the population is already on the breadline and much of the population is already outside the formal sector and just trying to make ends meet. In both those contexts, what you've seen these lockdowns do is cut off a huge chunk of the population's access to vital resources, namely day-to-day cash, uh, and with it food, etc. And we're already seeing manifestations of consequences to that, which is demonstrations, unrest, in some cases violent, A, and B, precisely because you have uh, such large segments of the population that, that are not in, they're not in formal housing, they're not in formal employment, they're not mm-hmm. potentially formally registered with much of the, of, of the modes of delivering any kind of cash or other, other relief to these populations to in some way compensate for this stress. And because of that, what we're already seeing is a lot of you know, welching on these lockdown measures, because when it comes to living today versus dying tomorrow, to put it really, really crudely, which one is, is, is going to win out? So you've got this double tap, if you like, of significant economic social stress, coupled probably with actually li- limited impact in terms of slowing down the spread of the infection because people are just reacting against it and going going with their, their, their immediate needs. You mentioned supply chain a couple of times, and that's obviously one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years, with, starting with the U.S.-China trade tension. We've, we've certainly helped a few clients with that, looking at how you can restructure your supply chains uh, in the region or elsewhere to avoid some of that um, potential risk. I think this has brought home, this latest crisis has brought home just how in almost every sector, whether it's healthcare, pharmaceuticals, or tech, or um, or manufacturing, how dominant a role China has played, sometimes unseen, uh, 
uh, unless you really uh, uncover your supply chain down maybe to the third or fourth level. We've seen some of the countries in the region, particularly Vietnam, benefit from not just the political tension, but also costs, higher costs in China, et cetera. Uh, so their uh, economy has done incredibly well with manufacturing investment coming in from outside the region, but particularly from Japan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, et cetera. Do we think that the rest of Southeast Asia and, and or beyond Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, Thailand, where they have established supply chains for many of these industries, or even places like Indonesia and India, where perhaps that's less so, do we think do we think those country, countries will benefit from a shift in supply chains, or will it be kind of par for the course and those those investments will go elsewhere in the world, perhaps? The one line, line that, that comes up time and again now is that uh, we're going to see uh, a lot of supply chain going home, and we're going to see a lot of supply chain diversification. If you want to survive, you have to diversify. But I want to make a different point which is born of my conversations with process managers, with ops guys, um, trying to keep their businesses running in Asia in the eye of the crisis. And my point is this, you really do walk away from your China supply chain at your peril. If I talk to these same people who have diversified their supply chain to other parts of the region, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, their anecdotal comments are, frankly speaking, the rest of the region in the eye of this supply chain crisis stepped down, not up. And some of my clients were right in the eye of a global supply chain shutdowns, not because of anything that happened in China, but because one component made on the outskirts of Kuala Lumpur was just being decimated by mm -hmm. erratic officialdom. So by all means, diversify your supply chain. But frankly speaking, today and for the medium term future, the one economy that can do it really, really well is still China. Now, you mentioned Vietnam. Vietnam uh, is a bit of a standout for me um, in terms of how it's weathered this storm. There are other standouts. I mean, everybody writes and talks about how well Singapore has done in flattening its curve, a, a phrase we're now all familiar with. We've talked about Korea, which equally has done done really well. Hong Kong's done a great job. Uh, the, the Taiwanese are keeping things under control, so on and so forth. Those, those economies are all pretty rich economies, and they're all quite centralized, uh, bureaucratic um, organizations with lots of money to spend, quite frankly. What for me, makes the Vietnamese stand out is they haven't got much cash to play with, um, and they've been extremely astute at how they marshal their limited resources uh, to deal with this crisis, whilst simultaneously uh, paying very close attention to keeping their export-orientated sector open, staffed, functioning, and without major out outbreaks of, of, of virus within those businesses. We were all looking at Vietnam. Uh, prior to the pandemic, as a um, you know, as a as an alternative uh, supply chain destination for China in terms of cost, and now proven in terms of its ability to to cope with shock to the system. Uh, so I, so again, I think that this this only plays to the to the Vietnam gallery. 
but it's a frankly it's a little country of eight yeah. million people with with you know three major urban centers and there's only so much capacity so much capacity there so so inv- investors are naturally going to have to go to to other places where things are just not as well organized yeah that's a, a good point and i think a good way to end the discussion for today We've covered, I think, just about every market in the region. So thank you, Steve, for for joining us and sharing your thoughts on the outlook for Asia. Thanks, Dane. So to summarize some of Steve's points here, he said that the COVID crisis in Asia, while we can't underestimate the economic pain, is essentially accelerating some of the longer-term trends that we've been seeing in the region for a while such as economic slowdowns in some of the larger key markets and faster progress toward automation. He also said that the fallout from the crisis seems to have demonstrated that China remains a key player for the Asian supply chain, although Vietnam has also come out well, but that decoupling from China may now look a lot less appealing than it did a couple of months ago. Thanks all for listening. This was the first in our Asia podcast series, and we'll be back with more in the coming days. In the meantime, please go to our website, controlrisks.com, for more analysis on this region.